In the name of our Savior, Jesus, dear friends, what has been your biggest battle in life? What have you worked at and worked at to overcome? Oh, we begin the battles very early in life, don't we? And we don't even remember our first fights, learning how to speak, potty training. School struggles are very real for some who are here this morning. They are distant memories uh, for many of us. Figuring out how to make friends, how to keep friends, math and grammar and history. Later on, college courses already in high school. When you get to college, figuring out different and more difficult ways of teaching at the university or resisting new temptations there. Maybe it's trying to figure out, wrestling with how to put up with coworkers or a certain boss maybe. If you've battled addiction, drugs, alcohol, pornography, something else, you know how tough it can be to conquer those. And even then, it's usually a matter of counting the weeks or the months or the years of conquering because you know that that's a lifelong battle. Well, there are lots of things that we could mention this morning. Each of us knows our own battles, those that we wage in our minds, the ones that we need to talk through, the ones that we need to take action on. But this morning, we're going to talk about the battle that is common to us all. Uh, and that's the toughest war we'll wage, the one against our sinful flesh. God says that we are all sinful from conception and birth, and that that sin corrupts everything about us as long as we are in this world. When we know this, and then we're confronted with a God who demands better, perfection even, then the battle begins taking shape. Our sinful flesh is pitted against God and his commands. But then we hear how God loved us in Jesus, and then we want to take up that challenge, and, and we want to conquer the sinful flesh and live for God. But how do we conquer the sinful flesh? In our gospel for today, we hear uh, Jesus, the one who does everything well, giving instruction and encouragement to his disciples. There was an incident that triggered this. Like a child saying to the teacher, 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 Emily is messing with the papers on your desk. The disciples were tattling on someone who was using Jesus' name to exercise demons. And they tried to stop him because they didn't think it was right. And like the teacher explaining that Emily was actually helping her, Jesus explained that this person was doing this and it was fine because he was doing it with faith in him. The guy wasn't part of the team of disciples and so uh, they were trying to stop him. But he was on Jesus' side. While their concern for Jesus and his good name was good, uh, their actions toward the man and their uh, pride in themselves 
was full of sin. And so Jesus taught them uh, to watch what they were doing and to address their sin and to live in a way uh, that would please God. We easily find applications for us today in these words uh, as Jesus taught his disciples. I think that there are three things. Uh, do the good things, get rid of sin, and live for God. The man that the disciples <clears throat> were concerned about was someone who trusted in Jesus. Why else would he use Jesus' name to help a person who was possessed by a demon? That's what Jesus was saying when he told his disciples not to stop him. Just because he was not one of the 12 or one of the band of believers that followed Jesus around didn't mean that he couldn't do good things in faith uh, in the Savior. The disciples were given the power to uh, exercise demons on occasion and God empowered this man to do the same. There was no reason to think that this man was against Jesus. There's a good reminder for us here. Just because someone is not part of our group uh, does not mean that they are not doing good by proclaiming the gospel. We can be happy for that proclamation of the gospel while not condoning the things that they might say or do that, that aren't quite right. Just because someone isn't part of our particular group of Christians doesn't mean that they can't do good. It doesn't mean that their faith-filled actions, like giving a cup of water to someone or helping someone who is in need, are somehow wrong or they have ulterior motives or God is somehow opposed to them. When we rise above the sinful flesh, we can recognize the good things that others do with faith in Christ, and, and we can conquer that they-are-not-one-of-us attitude like the disciples had, an attitude of the sinful flesh. Jesus teaches us here about our approach, our approach to the faith and actions of other Christians, but as he does so, uh, we also learn that doing good is part of our conquering our sinful flesh. We notice that the man was using Jesus' name. He was a, doing a good thing by proclaiming Jesus publicly. He was also doing a good thing by helping that demon-possessed person. Jesus wants all of us to do good for others by proclaiming his name and to helping people with their needs. And we should take care that we are doing the good things and not doing harmful things that, that might lead a person into sin. That would be very serious. Jesus uses here an extreme picture to demonstrate just how serious that would be. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall into sin, it would be better for him if he were thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around his neck. Jesus may have been referring to the little child, the one that he brought to the disciples um, and used as an example when they were uh, arguing amongst themselves about which one was the greatest. He may have been using that child as the reference again. However, it's also possible that he was thinking about a person who was a little one in faith, someone who was new to faith in him. Was it even possible that that this man, 
that they were reprimanding was one of those. Jesus says that that those who do good things will find a reward for them, the reward of eternal life. But the reward does not come because they did those good things or because they did more good things than bad things. No, they did those good things because Jesus told them to do them. And their love for Jesus and wanting to follow him moved them to do those good things. So that faith in Jesus was shown as they did the good things. Our sinful flesh cares only for itself. It is full of pride and self-righteousness too, just like those disciples showed. It needs to be conquered. We need to go to war with the sinful flesh. Jesus says that those who do good out of faith in him, will have a reward. They'll have the reward of heaven. The opposite is also true. Those who let sin run rampant in their lives will receive the opposite of a reward. They'll receive punishment. That punishment is eternal life in hell. You heard Jesus repeat a few times a description of hell. Certainly you caught it. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is where the maggots never stop eating the flesh of those who are there. It is a perpetual, disgusting, painful existence for those who have rejected God. And, he says, hell is where a fire never stops burning and inflicting pain on the person who has been separated from God. Terrible pictures. Terrible pictures uh, to tell us, in, in a very small way, how bad eternity in hell will be, how awful it will be to be separated from God and his eternal blessings. Wouldn't we want to do everything we can do to avoid that? Jesus tells us how. In order to conquer the sinful flesh and avoid eternity in hell, Jesus suggests amputation and dismemberment. Sinful hands, cut them off. Sinful feet, cut them off. Sinful eyes, Pluck them out. Why? Because if they're not there, they can't lead you to sinning with them. And that will help you maintain your faith in your Savior so that you have on your eternal horizon heaven and not hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is saying in a very graphic way to do whatever is necessary to conquer the sinful flesh. What the disciples would have understood, what you and I understand from this too, is that actually removing your hand won't keep the sin away. Nor will plucking out an eye or two or surgically removing your feet. Sin goes deeper than that. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the mind. So how do we conquer our sinful flesh? Perhaps there actually are things that need to be removed 
because they bring temptation to your hands and your feet and your eyes. Maybe it's the TV or a certain video game or freedom to access anything and everything on the internet. Or maybe it's a friend, someone who is no good for your faith. Or maybe it's finding another job or doing away with a hobby or some sort of interest that keeps you away from worship. Who knows what things might have to be lopped off of our lives? Well, the answer is you will. (laughs) You will know what needs to go. As you stop and think about this, you will know the things. Because it's no good to have those things here in this life if it means being isolated from God and enduring the pain and the emotional pain of being separated from God for eternity. Try as we might, we will, we will never completely rid ourselves and our lives of sin. But we are to make every attempt. That's what Jesus is saying with these graphic descriptions. We will never get it perfectly right. But we trust that Jesus has made up for our imperfections with his perfect life and forgiving that life for us on the cross. Jesus used the example of salt to make his point that his disciples were to live as God's people. His point is simple. Salt is valuable only if it is and truly remains salt. And in the same way, those who trust in and follow Jesus are valuable and they are useful if they live as his his disciples. And what is the salt with which they are seasoned? What is the salt that he says is in them? We might properly think of God's word. The thing that, that preserves our faith like salt preserves food. God's word is the thing that when it is applied to us gives us a unique flavor. It enhances us. It makes us stand out to God and to the world. It makes us uh, not just a follower, a disciple of Jesus, but an active representative of God in this world. Jesus spoke this way on another occasion. He was talking about Christians enduring persecution uh, as they lived for God, and he said, you are the salt of the earth. Disciples who are properly seasoned with the word of God, who properly represent him in this world, they are the salt in the world. And as such, the Apostle Paul encouraged the Colossian Christians, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you know how you are to answer each person. See, Jesus' followers speak in a a unique, a distinctive way. Uh, They share things with the world um, that are very important and they would not know otherwise. The word of God, the message of forgiveness and salvation in Jesus. So when Jesus says that, that they are to have salt in themselves, he, he uses a picture that he used before and a picture that would be used later on for Christians to encourage them. They're to live as God's people. 
And as they do this, they will encourage the faith in other people and that will bring about the peace which Jesus says he is looking for here. Living as God's people first means that we trust in Christ and not in the good things that we do or the sinful things that we remove from our lives. Living as God's people means knowing that Jesus overcame sin for us because we will never completely shed the sinful nature. Even if we were to do many good things and get rid of a a lot of sinful things and we were to often live as God's people, that is not perfection. It's not us doing better in life that saves us. We trust in Jesus who has done everything perfectly well and has conquered sin for us. Faith in him is how the sinful flesh is completely conquered and how every disciple finds their way into heaven. Amen. Now the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.